Would you grab your Bibles and open to Matthew chapter 17? Matthew chapter 17. We're continuing this journey called the Gospel of the Kingdom. And uh, we've been going for uh, just about two years now through the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Uh, It's been quite a journey already. We have another uh, six or nine months to go, so hang on. Um, We we will take a bit of a pause in the fall, just a short one, but uh, it's going to be a fall full of Matthew. And so uh, I believe a a fruitful uh, study as we we jump through that. So uh, last week, Brian Wade did an excellent job reorienting us back to uh, Matthew's gospel. Uh, in Matthew chapter 17, uh, there's uh, this, this moment where Jesus, for the first time, outwardly reflects the reality of who he is. And that comes off of Peter's declaration in Matthew chapter 16. So in Matthew's gospel, 16 and 17 is like a hinge point that flips to the second half. This move uh, from now on, Jesus is going to be working his way toward Jerusalem, toward the cross, towards a confrontation with the religious leaders of the day as he begins to do the work for which he's been sent, which is not simply to teach and to model the kingdom to us, but to create a way for us into the kingdom. And uh, so we're going to be uh, walking walking through that over the next couple weeks. Um, we're going to pick up today in verse 22. Two of Matthew chapter 17. So if you were with us last week, we ended at verse 13, and typically we go every single verse. Um, we do, I, I do a daily podcast Monday through Friday, and so I'm going to cover 14 through 21 on the daily podcast, not because it's not important, it's really important, but because um, we're not allowed to be here for an hour and a half every service, and I just don't have time to hit all of it. So uh, we're going to kick that one to the middle of the week, and we're going to start with verse 22. So if you're following along, uh, get to Matthew chapter 17, and we'll start in verse 22. Let me read for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, Yes. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up. And when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Jesus, as we come to your word, help us to be people who are open to what it is that you're telling us by your spirit. Shape us by your truth. God, would you direct our paths And would you open our eyes to the reality of your kingdom at work in the world around us? I pray that you would guard my words, that they would come from your spirit alone, that the words that come from my flesh would fall to the ground and be forgotten. But the words that come from your spirit this morning would 
penetrate our hearts, transform us, make us different people because of your truth. May your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I I feel like I say this a lot in the Gospel of Matthew, but this is a weird story. Um, This is a short but really odd narrative of the life of Jesus. It's only found in Matthew's Gospel, uh, and I thought it was important for us to dive into it to try to understand why it is that Matthew put it there, because it's so, so odd. Um, Dr. Tim Mackey, when he was speaking of this story, called it a story of death and taxes, and I think that's about right. Um, Maybe you have heard the quote from Benjamin Franklin. uh, Right after the framing of the Constitution, uh, Franklin wrote, that the Constitution had an appearance that promises permanency, but nothing is certain except for death and taxes. <laughs> that uh, is very much the world that we live in today. Um, whether you come from the left or the right, or you can't tell your left from the right, um, it's uh, a world that we live in where nothing seems to be certain but death and taxes. So what do we learn from this story? How do we step in to a story like this? Well, I, I'm more and more convinced that it's a vital story for us in this moment. And so let me try to unpack that. I want to walk through the story itself uh, first under the heading of a tense story because whether you read it it as you listened or not, this is a very tense moment. And then that story has a very odd resolution. So we're going to look at a tense story and an odd resolution. And then ultimately the application under the heading of identity and freedom. I think that's really the heart of what Jesus is teaching us about, identity and freedom. So a tense story, an odd resolution, identity and freedom. So we pick up with Jesus reiterating to his disciples his, his death. So he says, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. So the question is, who who are those men? He's referencing back to someone. Who are the men that Jesus is talking about? Well, if you go back to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, he's going to lay it out really clearly. He says, uh, it, it says in Matthew 16, 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders the chief priests and the scribes. So Jesus names names, right? He said, these are the people, the elders, the chief priests and the scribes. These are the ones that are going to be, uh, that are going to be trying me and ultimately killing me. And he references that at the beginning of this story. So they've just come off of the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John have seen with their eyes the glory of the Messiah among them, God with us. As they come down, Jesus makes this declaration, I will be delivered into the hands of men. And they know that those men are the elders and the scribes and the chief priests, who are both the rulers of Israel and, important for our purposes, the leaders of the temple, which is central to the life of Judaism for Israel. So the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes are who Jesus is talking about. He says, I will be delivered in the hands of men. I'll be killed. On the third day, rise again. And Matthew records they were greatly distressed because the disciples always seemed to miss the rise again part. They were like captured by the kill part and missed the rise again part. And so they're, they're uh, just weighed down by the reality that Jesus is going to die and they don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense. They go from there to Capernaum, 
which is Peter's hometown. And so it's very likely they were staying in Peter's house. And so when the collectors of this tax come, they come to talk to Peter, the man of the house. They come to have a conversation with him. And they ask about this two drachma tax. Now, important to get, this is not... Matthew's kind of tax collector. Remember, Matthew, the author of this gospel, was a tax collector prior to following Jesus. That was a tax collector on behalf of the Roman Empire, a civil tax. This is a different thing. This is the temple tax collected by Jewish people for Jewish people. So this is this massive complex in Jerusalem, the temple, the center of all of the nation of Israel. It has to run somehow, and it's run with this tax. So every Israelite every year pays two drachma, and those two drachma go to the the, the employment of I, I'm sure the the priests, but also like uh, the Levites who are wandering around. I bet there's a big grounds crew. Somebody's got to cut the grass, right, or whatever it is that they're doing. Uh, there goes to all of that stuff. Everything that goes to the running of the temple. But beyond being a practical tax, this has, by Jesus' time, become a bit of a religious political statement. So those who paid the tax were in support of the Jewish authorities. Those who didn't pay the tax did so either because they felt like they were a teacher, a rabbi. There were rabbis that were excluded because they saw themselves at equal with the Jewish authorities, or because they were rebelling against the Jewish authority, they were unwilling to pay the tax. So by this time, if you've followed along the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has had lots of run-in with the Jewish authorities. So he's run into them about the idea of fasting, about the idea of the Sabbath, all of these central tenets of Judaism. He's had these clashes over uh, these finer points of the law with the leaders of Judaism. Now, he makes the statement, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and be handed over to these men, the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And just at that time, Matthew records the leaders of the temple sending these people to come. I picture, I, I picture two people coming like Mormon missionaries. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's what I picture. I picture them coming in little pairs, and they're coming uh, backpacks, and they're coming to like collect the tax. I, that's just what's in my head. And so they come and want to collect the tax from Jesus. Uh, there's already this tension. It's, it's almost like imagine there's this ascent to power, and um, like in our in our nation, we're coming towards an election, so there's two different parties. It's almost like Jesus is like this third-party long shot that's gaining power, but he's gaining power in all of the margins, not in the, like he's not going to D.C., he's not going to the big cities, he's gaining power in all of the margins, and all of the, like, the main powers are looking at him like, what the, what, like, what's going on? Like, what's happening here? That's the ascent of Jesus, and then these guys come to Peter, and they, they ask the question in a way, it's tough to get in English, but it's a phrase that is begging a positive answer. Uh, like the English equivalent would be, your teacher pays the tax, doesn't he? Something like that. Where he would, they'd be saying, like, of course the answer is yes, right? Your teacher pays the tax. And Peter, uh, of course we don't have inflection. I so wish that we could hear what Peter said, because I don't know if he was like, yes, he pays the tax. My bet is he was like, uh, yeah, 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 he pays the tax, right? Because we know that Peter is not beyond lying to look good in front of people. We're going to see him do that here in just a couple chapters. So my, my bet is he has no idea. He, he doesn't have any clue. He could have, he's been with Jesus long enough. He may have seen Jesus pay the tax in the past. Who knows? But he, but he says, yes, 
I picture it with a bit of uncertainty because then he walks into the house. There's this tense moment outside where he's, uh, he's on Jesus' behalf in this confrontation with the ruling authorities. And as he walks in, Jesus breaks the ice, right? It's so great because uh, we don't know. Does Jesus just know what happened? Did he hear outside? We have no idea. But he walks in and Jesus says, so Simon, using his Jewish name, uh, Simon, what do you think? From whom do the kings of the earth collect toll or tax? From their sons or from others? Now remember, uh, always important when you're reading the scriptures, this is not the United States of America in the 21st century, right? So um, we, we're, um, we're an equal opportunity taxation kind of place. If you uh, breathe, we will tax you, right? So it doesn't matter who you're related, in theory at least, doesn't matter who you're related to, it doesn't matter like who you are, everybody gets taxed. But in this culture, it's a totally different thing. The, the kings collected tax from the other people. But if you were related to the king... You weren't paying taxes. So he says, so, so Simon, what, what happens? Do the kings collect the tax from their kids or from everybody else? And Simon, of course, says, well, everybody else. Now remember, we're in the context of Peter coming off the mountain with Jesus, Jesus glowing, being transfigured before him, Moses and Elijah appearing. And do you remember the voice that came out of the cloud? This is my son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So he's just heard the literal booming voice of God declare Jesus to be the son. And Jesus says, who do the kings get the tax from? Their kids or everybody else? Everybody else. So now what? This tension has been set up where Jesus is saying, not only is he exempt from the tax, but remember when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, how did he teach them to pray? Our Father. So he's invited them into this same relationship. Who has to pay the tax, the kids or the others? The others, Peter says. It's a fascinating declaration that Jesus is making to us. I just want to pause before we keep going in the story because what Jesus is saying, we have to get. Jesus is saying that there is nothing that we can do to earn our position within the family of God. See, in that culture, you paid the tax to have the right to be in the temple, which was the presence of God. You, you supported the temple so that you could be. This is not like the usher coming and saying, hey, did you drop your money in the plate yet? This is, are, are you in favor of the Jewish authorities so that you can be in the presence of God? And you're paying two drachma a year effectively to be in the temple, to be a child of God. And what Jesus is saying is, you don't have to pay anything. It's free. Your sons and daughters, you're invited you're, you're, you don't have to earn it. You don't have to prove it. You, you don't have to come in and show yourself to be seen as appropriate. You are, you are invited in as children. And if the story ended there, we could have such a beautiful application time. It would be really sweet. We'd have a nice, we'd like sing Kumbaya at the end. It would be so wonderful. But the story doesn't end there, right? It's so weird. The story keeps going. So Jesus then 
making the statement, you're free, you're children like me, you're a son, and you're free, you don't have to pay the tax. And then he says in verse 27, however, not to give offense to them. Can I just ask you a question? Since when is Jesus interested in not offending people, right? Like, are you serious? So as not to give offense to them. Jesus, in a couple weeks, months, is going to go into the temple and flip over the tax tables, right? Like, talk about offense. Like, he's going to offend everybody in the place. So as not to give offense to them. So instead of refusing to pay the tax, Jesus reaches into a pocket and pulls out a coin, right? No. No, he has to make it even more complicated. There's this weird, like, pseudo-miracle thing. We don't actually know what happened. He says to Peter, go catch a fish. It's the only instance in the entire Bible we have of fish, lots of fishermen in the Bibles, single-line fishing. This is the only instance we have of single-line fishing in the entire Bible. Throw a line in, like he's like, out, like I don't know, fly fishing or something, whatever he's doing. Pull in the, the fish, open its mouth, and the first one's going to have a shekel in its mouth worth for drachma, you'll be able to pay for you and for me. We have no record as to how Peter responded to that. Did he go catch the fish? Is that what Jesus meant literally? Did he pull? Uh, fish eat shiny things. That's biological, so we know that happens. Maybe there are instances of fish having very valuable things in their mouths. It, it's weird. Like we don't. Did Jesus mean go catch a fish and sell it for a shekel? Did he mean go like literally pull the first one out? It's gonna be. I'm gonna do this miracle. Certainly, he's cap- If he can raise dead people, he can put a shekel in the fish's mouth, right? Like it's, it's this weird story. But Jesus, in the end, pays the tax, is the inference, the tax that is going to the authorities that will ultimately kill him. Don't miss that this story started with Jesus saying, I'm going to have a confrontation with the leaders of the temple who are going to kill me. Will you pay the tax to support the leaders of the temple? Huh, right? And instead of saying no... Even though he can, he says, go catch a fish, pull a coin out of his mouth, and pay the tax. Weird story. What in the world does this have to do with us? Well, let's try to dig into it, because I I truly believe it has so much to say to us in our current culture. Matthew is making it explicitly clear to us that Jesus is acting out of his identity as a child of God. Explicitly clear. Matthew chapter 16, who do people say I am? Elijah, John the Baptist, one of the prophets. Who do you say I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Then he goes up the mountain, is transfigured before them. This is my son whom I love, in him I am well pleased. He explains to Peter, who who pays the taxes, the kids or everybody else? Everybody else. It's clear that he's within his identity as a child of God. As a son of the father, he is completely unconcerned about what anybody else thinks of him. I mean, imagine, if, if when you left here today, You were on your way home, and from heaven, a voice boomed down, God the Father saying, you are my daughter, I love you, I am well pleased with you. 
Are you going to be concerned about what somebody thinks about you on the way home? No, you're like, I'm good for a long time, right? Like, I, I, I don't know about you. I don't hear the voice of God on a very regular basis. So, like, if I hear that as I'm leaving, I'm, I'm pretty good this afternoon. Like, I'm in good shape. Jesus, acting out of that identity, still pays the tax. Like, what in the world's going on? So, I, it, it has to start at a personal level. Jesus, like us, is embracing who he is as a son of the Father. As sons and daughters of the Most High God, invited in by Jesus himself. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul lays that out. John, in 1 John chapter 3, rejoices, overflows with it. We are children of God, and that is what we are. As children of the Father, we first have to personally receive that reality. We have to embrace our identity as children, sons and daughters, who have already been given everything, who don't have to earn anything. Do you see Jesus? Jesus has this dual temptation when the tax collector comes. He either earns it or he holds on to his freedom and says, I don't have to. But instead, he just says, I don't have to prove anything to you because of who I am. And that's the reality for us. We are invited to live into our position as children of God. We don't have to be afraid because we know who our father is. We don't have to be worried about what's coming next because we know who our father is. We don't have to worry about what the people around us think because we know who our father is. When we come to worship, we don't have to look around and see, like, how am I supposed to interact? What am I supposed to do? How am I? Because we know who our father is, right? When we go out into the world, we don't have to say, like, what do they think about me? What do they? The father thinks that you're great. He loves you. And if we get a hold of that, we start to live differently. So it starts with this personal reality. Jesus refuses, refuses to earn his position as a child of God. He simply receives it, and we have to do the same thing. So it starts personally. But then it's like there are these concentric circles because Jesus doesn't refuse to pay the tax. It starts, that identity starts to have an implication. So Jesus, recognizing his absolute freedom as a son of God, now chooses to not give offense. Martin Luther, in his writings, uh, is one of the clearest theologians writing about the two kingdoms that we straddle as followers of Jesus, that we live within the kingdom of the world as residents and citizens of the kingdom of God. Luther makes this statement, a Christian is the most free of all and subject to none. A Christian is the most dutiful servant of all and subject to everyone. Now get hold of that. He says, a a Christian is the most free of all, subject to none, and a Christian is the most dutiful servant of all, subject to everyone. What the heck does that mean? Well, it means that we're free to serve. We can sacrifice because we no longer have to earn anything. We no longer have to prove anything. We no longer have to be at the top of the pecking order being served by others because we know we're already at the top of the pecking order, so we can simply serve everybody. 
So I think there are, there are a couple levels of implications. Let's start with the communal level. So um, church community, the community of faith kind of level. Let, let me ask you a question. When you come to church this morning, how do you feel? Particularly those of you who are here physically. How do you feel on the way here? Most Christians, as we come to church, if it's a church that you've been to a lot and are comfortable with, you probably felt some combination of like peace, joy, maybe anticipation, excitement of some of the people that you're going to see, uh, a sense of well-being as, as you walk in to be able to engage. There's a comfort level that you felt. That's, that's pretty typical. Now, does everybody who shows up at a gathering of the people of God feel like that? No, 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 not at all. In fact, there are lots of people, let's just take a couple categories, people who have been part of this community of faith for a long period of time, but who had a week where they did not live as a child of God. I won't go into a lot of specifics. They walk in and they feel guilty. They feel beat up and they don't feel excited. But how about even more? Someone who's relatively new to faith, new to a church community, maybe moved in from somewhere else, or maybe is coming back to church for the first time in a really long time. Like, it, there's this level of un uncomfortableness, weirdness. Everybody knows everybody, but nobody knows me. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Where am I supposed to sit? What am I supposed? Where are those lyric sheets? Why is everybody looking at those? I don't even know where they are. I, I, I'm not sure how I'm supposed to interact. Where am I supposed to sit? Where am I supposed to go? E everybody's doing something, but I'm not doing anything. Right? There's this level of discomfort. It's very natural if you're, uh, if you're stepping in for the first time. Now, here's the question. If you're living as a son or a daughter of the Most High God, what do you do with that freedom? You sit back and say, hope you all figure it out because I am free to relax when I'm here, right? You could, and you're free to do that, right? Absolutely. Kick back and chill. You're, you're free to do that. But you can also take that freedom and say, I'm going to get up from where I am, and I'm going to approach that person who doesn't look like they're really comfortable, and I'm going to try to get a sense of where they're at. That person who walked up, they just kind of looked like they were heavy. I'm going to go have a conversation with them, maybe pray blessing over them. Why? Because you're obligated to? No, because you're free to. Because you don't have to get it right. Because it doesn't matter if you feel like I said the wrong thing and I look stupid. Who cares? You're a child of God. Chill out, man. Relax. It's all good. See, that's it, communally, we have this opportunity to invite people into a safe community. And let me take it a step beyond that. Do, do you know, you have to trust me on this. If you haven't had conversations, you have to trust me on this. Do you know that your neighbors and your coworkers and people in your extended family long to be here with you this morning. Like, you have to trust me on this. There is a deep desire in the hearts of people who are either far from God or far from a church community right now to gather with the people of God. You know what they're waiting on? Yeah. You and I, to stop being so comfortable as we sit and chill and go take a step toward them and invite them in. Because as children of God, we get the opportunity to invite them. Communally, we get the opportunity 
to reach out and love the people around us. Let me take it one concentric circle further out. Societally, this is where I'm going to step on a few of your toes, so if you're coming sensitive to this morning, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to push a little bit now. Um, why did Jesus pay the tax? He says it. Why, why did Jesus pay the tax? So not to give offense, right? But, but why then? Why when he's going to flip over the tables and offend everybody later, doesn't he do it right now? N.T. Wright refers to Jesus in this moment as the grand strategist. Jesus is very willing to offend when it advances the kingdom. But in this moment, offending doesn't advance the kingdom. These are like, these people who are coming to collect the tax, they're like interns for the summer, right? They're like, I'm telling you, there are a pair of them wandering around with backpacks asking for the tax. Like, they're, they're not the people that he needs to offend. He's n- they're not the people that he needs to have a confrontation with. So to further the kingdom, it's best so as not to offend in this moment. Jeremiah writes the, the word of God to the exiled people of God in Jeremiah 29. And he says, you as exiles are to live in, flourish in, and pray for the peace of the community to which you've been exiled. So we as children of God are to bear peace and pray for peace in the community around us. How do we do that? Well, we first have to understand, it starts personally, we understand our identity as children of God. I understand I don't have to prove anything. I don't have to defend anything. I, I don't have to, like, stand up for my rights. I don't have to, like, stick it to the man, right? Like, that's, I, it's not my job. Like, I'm, I'm good. I'm a child of God. I've already been given everything I need. A- and then what do we do? Well, um, uh, flip to Romans chapter 14. Romans chapter 14 is a fascinating passage. It comes right on the heels of Romans chapter 13. Been cited a lot in the last five to six months on various sides of the arguments that are swirling all around us. In Romans 13, Paul says that you should submit to the ruling authorities because they're in place by God. Regardless of how you interpret that, let me just historically point out that this is the Roman Empire that he's talking about, and like they were feeding Christians to the lions and like dipping them in tar and lighting them on fire to light the streets. Uh, So historically, this is not a great time to be a Christian. He says, first, submit to the authorities that are over you. And then in Romans chapter 14, Paul's going to make this statement. I told you I was going to step on some toes, so bear with me for just a minute. Starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom, God, for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Beginning of verse 20, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. 
This is parallel to a passage that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 where he says very similar things about not putting a stumbling block in front of people. He's talking uh, in Romans chapter 14 about food. He's talking in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 about meat that's being, uh, maybe has been sacrificed to idols. Nobody knows if it has been or not, but it's good meat. Um, if you know me at all, you know that food and meat are very close to my heart, right? I'm, I'm very, uh, I'm pro-food and I'm especially pro-meat. I'm really, I'm big on meat. That's great. Um, and Paul says, this is a difficult passage for me. That's why I didn't quote 1 Corinthians. Um, Paul, Paul says, I, I just wouldn't eat meat anymore if it helps my brother come to Christ. Like, I, I'm still working on that, right? But he's saying, he, he says, look, the kingdom of God is of such great importance that my freedom is worth holding with an open hand because do not destroy for the sake of food the work of the kingdom. Like, it's way more important than the food that you're eating. It's way more important than the right that you have to do what you want to do. So Paul says, do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Can I just substitute while I step on your toes a little bit more? Do not, for the sake of a cloth mask over your face, destroy the work of God. Do not, for the sake of large indoor gatherings that you believe you have a right to have, destroy the work of God. Do you see what Paul's saying? He's saying there's a place and a point in time and a moment where the kingdom advance means that we hold to our rights and we declare what's true. But there's a vast majority of the time where in order to be peaceful citizens that we are exiled into a community around us, we say, you know what? It's not that big of a deal. Societally, I'm deeply concerned that we're fighting for the wrong things. We're concerned about all of this stuff. And Jesus is saying, pay the tax. Like, go catch a fish. Like, it's no big deal. Because down the line, there's going to be an, an ultimate reckoning. And at that point, we'll deal with all that stuff. But right now, like, it's, it's no big deal. Like, breathe. Relax. It's fine. Let me say it this way. This, it, whatever the illustration is, Jesus is saying you are free to serve in order to advance the kingdom. That's the heart of the gospel. You've already been freed. You don't have to prove anything. You don't have to show yourself to be anything. You are already freed. So use your freedom to advance the gospel. Use your freedom to see the big picture in the world around you. Step into that reality. So, so how do we respond? Well, I, I think we first we must first nail down the personal reality of being children of God. None of this makes any sense if you and I haven't first believed that we're sons and daughters of God without any work on our behalf. We, that we, we don't have to earn it. We don't have to prove it. We don't have to show anybody. We don't have to jump over a bar. If we, if we don't first believe that, then none of this other stuff makes any sense. So it has to start personally. I have to truly believe, you have to truly believe that Jesus loves you and has given himself for you. Do you know before the temple tax comes to get collected. Jesus talks about paying the tax. It just it isn't in a language that Peter can understand. What's he say? I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be handed over to men. I'm going to be killed and on the third day rise again. 
That's paying the tax. Jesus has paid for us to be children of God. That's what he's saying to Peter. That's what he's saying to the disciples. You have been invited in because I will go and pay the price for you. Once we recognize that we're children of God, we have this grand declaration in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, it's by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And even that faith is not anything of yours. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast, right? It's this grand declaration where he says, the faith to believe the grace that's been given to you was given to you by God. Everything comes from him. You haven't earned anything. You can't. It's been given to you freely. What's he say after that? You are the beautiful workmanship of God, created to do good works, kingdom works, that I have planned in advance for you to do. So you and I get the joy of every morning getting up out of bed and saying, wow, what do you plan for me today, Dad? What do I have? I have big plans because you've put kingdom work in front of me. And if I recognize that I've been saved by grace through faith, not as a work of my own, but as a gift of God so that no one can boast, now the work that I'm doing isn't to prove anything, isn't to like earn the favor of God. He's already given it to me. Now I get to step into that with joy. So my friend Steve, um, uh, Steve is a leader in a church in the area and um, is, I I would put him on the side of being um, strongly religious liberty oriented in a way that would say, um, I I don't need to wear a mask. If I don't want to wear a mask, I can gather inside. If I want to gather inside, that, that kind of position. I was having a conversation with him this week, and it was fascinating because it, Steve, while he and I don't always agree on everything, is a mature follower of Jesus. And he was talking about a neighbor who typically stays in the house, but during the quarantine was out doing some gardening, and he finally got a chance to go meet him. And so they struck up a conversation, and he found out through conversation that this person, uh, a well-distanced eight to ten feet away conversation, that this person is very concerned about the virus and everything that's going on in the world and is following all of the CDC guidelines literally to the letter, probably adding some, you know, like a good Pharisee, like adding some extra stuff along the way. And you know what Steve said to me? What I realized in that moment is that my neighbor will never hear the gospel if it's not spoken through a mask. Like, he, he got it. He said, if I don't put a mask on, I'm never going to be able to love this guy. Now, let me tell you the opposite story. I, I work with a board at a local pool, and they're great. I love them. Um, but they are a rebellious bunch of people. They are, like, they're fired up. Um, they're, uh, there's uh, several of them that are definitely in the, um, I, I'm not going to put a mask on my face no matter what you tell me to do. They walk into every store and county without masks on. They just, like, do their thing, right? And so for them... They're never going to be able to hear the gospel if I insist upon a mask while I have a conversation with him. Do you see? The point is not the piece of cloth. The point is not my right or my lack of right, my submission or my not submission. The point is the kingdom, and the point has always been the kingdom for the people of God. That's what we're called to step into. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, I have become all things to all people so that in some way I might save as many as that are possible. I'll do whatever it takes. It doesn't matter. 
I'll do whatever it takes in order to love the people around me. Let me end here. I truly believe, and I believe it not just personally, but in conversations with dozens of people who are far older than me and have far more experience in the kingdom of God than I do. I truly believe that this is the single biggest missional opportunity of our lifetimes. We have an opportunity now that we may never have again before Jesus comes and that we haven't had for probably 100 years. I wasn't alive after World War II, so we'll call it 70. Like, it, it's an incredible missional opportunity. There are people, if you, again, if you haven't had conversations, you have to trust me on this. I, I've had conversations with people that I never imagined I would have. People who were very resistant to having any kind of conversation about Jesus are all of a sudden wanting to know where we have church. Like, they want to know what's going on. We can't miss the moment because we're trying to earn what's already been given to us. We're trying to prove what's already been given to us. Instead, we have to prioritize the kingdom. And so rest as a son or daughter of God. Rest in who you are. Recognize that it's all already been paid. And then, out of that freedom, go love the world. Help others to know. Show them the pathway. Through a mask, without a mask, close, far away, socially distanced, elbow bumped, whatever you need to do. Go love them toward Jesus because we have an opportunity now that we may never have again. Let's pray together. Jesus, we long to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, it's so hard for us to imagine that we are as free as the gospel declares us to be. It's so hard for us to understand that we don't have to pay the tax. So God, help us to to believe it, to rest in it. By your spirit, press it into our hearts. And then God, pry open our hands. Help us to release everything that doesn't forward the kingdom. Not because it's a right or wrong kind of question or that we should or shouldn't, but because it's not as important as the kingdom. And so help us to be people who step into the way that the kingdom is continuing to move forward. Do this, Jesus, we pray. Open our hearts to your reality. In your name, amen.